As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Mercedes takes historic one, two, three, four. There's argy-bargy as the rest fight over the scraps. The driver merry-go-round goes into overdrive and an old friend returns in the latest instalment of Sam's Calendar Update. I'm Andrew Vandenberg and this is the Race Formula E podcast, Berlin E pre-edition. Hello everyone and welcome to another action-packed show. After two more races around the Tempelhof Airport, we've got loads to talk about. And joining me to do just that is, as ever, the race Formula E Meister, Sam Smith, and our special guest, Alice Powell. As well as being a leading light of W Series, Alice is the simulator and development driver for Envision Racing. Alice, you've written columns for the race. You've been on a video for WTF1 teaching Katie Fairman how to kart. Now you're completing the Holy Trinity by making your podcasting debut. Uh, Thank you for coming on the show. No worries. Thanks for having me, guys. Right, we've got a lot to get through, so let's start with the races. Sam, two races, two wins for Mercedes powertrains. What was it about Tempelhof that led to this domination? Well, I think it's really easy to just say that it's because the track is more suited to the Mercedes powertrain and, and the way it treats its tyres, particularly on the this super quirky runway asphalt that we have there. But actually, that's only part of it. You know, yes, ultimately they have all those things, but the hard work that goes on at both Mercedes EQ and the Rocket Venturi teams combined with how the driver applies it and, the, and their style really just came to the fore over the weekend. Remember that the temperatures were, were much reduced from the August hothouse last season. So it was a very different type of parameters that the teams were, were racing to, I think, this weekend, last weekend. You know, what we definitely saw with Eduardo Montaro was that he was able to turn in and just rotate his car at the hairpins much more efficiently than the others. I mean, that was clearly evident on the onboard camera. And and it was sublime. I mean, when you watched it, it looked like he was driving a different series to the rest of um, his competitors. One team boss described it to me as, as if he had power steering. It was just so so precise as he went through many of those uh, pretty tight turns at Tempelhof. So, you know, he had the advantage. And in particular, it was because he had that 
he's got great application in the powertrain, and then that brings great efficiency. But where he really benefited was just on the, the simple vehicle dynamics of how he used his tyres and, and how he managed to save or at least preserve his rear tyres and, and thus, thus cut out any extreme oversteer, which a lot of the others were unable to to do effectively. So, you know, I, I think he um, he just had a combination of factors that suited his style. And as we saw, it reaps uh, some great results. Alice, we ran two versions of the track, the traditional, or what's become the traditional version on the Saturday and the reversed layout on the Sunday. In terms of the demands and setup on the car, how much do they differ? Um, not too much, to be honest. I mean, as, as Sam touched on, the the asphalt or the, the tarmac, or it's not even tarmac, is it, it's, it's, it's quite strange. So either way, you go around the track you're you're going to experience the same um sort of degradation and and the way that the tires come in so there isn't too much difference um and i've i've raced there in in the jaguar i-pace e-trophy when that was a support race um back uh, a couple of years ago to to the formula e and and we didn't change too much on the car either we just obviously adjusted tire pressures for for the direction that you went of, of the circuit so you know it's it's definitely a challenging weekend um they're full-on weekends Formula E weekends but but also for for the drivers to then sort of switch and and turn their their brains the other way around as as, as such to to adjust to the the track being the other direction but you know it, it's always one for me and when I experienced it back in the, in the I-Pace I really enjoyed it I enjoyed the challenge of going the other way so you know, as as again, Sam said that it really definitely suited this sort of circuit, the Mercedes powertrains, whereas others were sort of struggling with with some overheating of, of tires, and um, you know, that was certainly, I think, was one of the, the things that we uh, Envision sort of struggled a little bit with at the weekend as well. Yeah, we'll get into uh, Envision's performance a little bit later, but Sam, you mentioned Mortara and, and his performance in that first race and some quite canny strategy from Venturi and how he was deploying the uh, the attack mode there. But behind him, there was just this almighty battle that was almost the entire top 10 uh, swapping positions uh, almost every lap. I mean, there was, was a great call from Venturi to come out on top of that. Yeah, I mean, canny is the the operative word there. They They were super cute on how they executed that uh, strategy on particularly on Saturday I think you know seeing seeing how it was applied I think Edo needs a lot of credit because I think his his, his style suited how he could actually manage the pace um, from the front which isn't an easy thing to do in 2022 Formula E racing because you've got the slipstream effects. We saw that at Monaco and we saw that Mitch Evans really suffered from that, but Edo didn't. He managed it pretty conservatively, but when he needed to step it up, he did. And he hit his his energy targets and he hit his minimum speed requirements. I think a lot of credit as well has to go to the chief engineer, uh, Jeremy Collinson, uh, and the head of performance, Alex uh, Dardelet, who's Edo's engineer as well. You know, they they read the race super well and, and leaving that attack mode slightly later, even though he lost places to Lotter and Van Dorn, he was able to come through pretty quickly and, and pick them off. He also had to resist Jean-Eric Verne's slightly do or die attack in the, I think the penultimate lap when he, he tried to move and, and Edo let him go. And then he just jinked by on the inside. And from there, it was not, not an easy run to the flag, but he, you know, he had it fully under control. You always felt he had a little bit, in reserve if he needed it and you know the big story for Edo was that he actually 
you know, he managed to get that monkey off his back, didn't he, of a pole position, and he and then he had doubled it up. You know, it's the the old adage, isn't it? You know, two buses come at once. He just did a great uh, a great job, and um, I think now we always knew he'd be in the mix in the championship. But I think after the slight trough of Rome and of uh, of Monaco, when he he retired from races because of contacts, not not his fault generally. Um, you know, the momentum's back with him and uh yeah, he's he's a genuine threat with that package that he has. Alice, in contrast to the sort of cut and thrust of the first race, the second one was well, relatively relatively processional with uh Nick De Vries really winning at a canter. Why do you think that was? Uh I think I think teams had sort of redefined or sort of not not redefined, that's the wrong word, but you know, tweaked their setup a little bit more over um, that what they learned in in the first race, obviously with Formula E, you have the shakedown, but you know you're restricted to what power mode you, you use there. And then when you the free practice sessions, they're they're not particularly long, so it's quite that it's not you don't get a, a great deal of running um, in Formula E, so they don't have a huge amount of time to really get get the setups dialed in. You know, again, Sam mentioned that the, the the track temperatures were a lot different from last year, um, August last year. It was super hot. Um, so, you know, the teams would have learned a lot in, in race one. And I think that probably played into, you know, teams finding a little bit here and there. It's maybe some not as much as, as others. And then that affected the result and how close the field was in, in the second race. So I'm in contrast to Mortara's win at the front. Um, teammate Lucas de Grassi was uh, quite a way down the order in, the, in that first race. What happened to him? Yeah, he had a bad day on Saturday. Didn't get his second quality lap together at all. Um, and it anchored him down to 13th. He actually got a really decent start in the race, but then had some, I believe he had some contact early on and, and developed a, uh, a slow puncture which he had to pit and then you know was way back hoping for a, a safety car but it, it never came and they actually parked the car a couple of laps from the flag to to save uh, aspects of it so yeah disappointing day for him and obviously you know all the more galling to see his teammate um take a, a victory but i think uh i think you know that that interesting dynamic between degrassi and, and mortara is still there i spoke to Jerome D'Ambrosio at length, um, actually over breakfast on the Thursday at Berlin. And in the way that it was handled, I think, after Monaco when they, they collided and ruined Edo's race was um, was pretty impressive, actually. You know, Jerome is a new team principal, don't forget. You know, he only started in the role at the beginning of this season, but he's, he's kind of made a, a really good niche for himself. And I think that was handled internally, as these things should be. Um, and it's, you know, there is that combustibility, isn't there, with drivers and and with two strong characters like uh, Mortara and Degrassi, I think, as we alluded to in the last podcast, it was always going to happen. But they seem to have sort of quelled that a little bit. And, um, uh, yeah, and, 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 you know, Lucas still has to, uh, you know, he has to try and get on terms with Edo. And, and after last weekend, he's, you know, he's, he's got an even bigger task of it. Um, talking of combustibility, Alice, we had some genuine controversy in qualifying when Alexander Sims and Jean-Éric Verne set exactly the same time in the head-to-head stage in qualifying, only for Sims to progress because he set the time first. And what did you make of uh, all of the fallout from that? <laughs> well, I, I was watching that at the time and I couldn't believe it. I thought, what are the odds? That just shows of how close Formula E is, how competitive the championship is. And and to be honest with you, um, you know, Karun said it in commentary and I, I actually agree with him that they, they probably should have done it again 
because obviously you don't have control over who goes out the pit lane first. So Alexander, he, he went out the pit lane first and then John O'Brien went out second. So that was the order that they had to go in. There was no choice. They didn't weren't allowed to race to the pit lane to, to queue up uh, to try and decide who goes first. So I think, you know, that was out of jean Eric Verne's control and, and Alexander's control. Luckily, he set the lap time first. But I think, you know, to keep it fair, and I know there's probably maybe a bit of a time restriction with, with TV and stuff, but I would have liked to have seen, if, if it was from my point of view, um, especially being if I was in jean Eric Verne's shoes, to, to have that lap or that shootout sort of ran aground. Maybe they come in the pits, um, they sit and the next next lot go out and then they 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 run it again. But I think to keep it fair, um, they should have probably altered the rules there and and, and have sent Jean-Eric Byrne out again. So I'd like to see if they, if they maybe have a look back on, on that and, and decide to, to alter that slightly. You can see why the rule is what it is, because if we remember back to Jerez 97, when those top three all set at the same time, it was done in the order they went out. But that's a very different format to this head-to-head thing where, you know, it's it's supposed to be, you know, this ultimate competition thing. We're going to have a rules amendment here, aren't we, as a result of this? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, I if there wasn't the rule where, you know, they, they have to go out in a specific order, then I think fair enough. You know, if you you wait 10 seconds compared to your competitor and go out 10 seconds later and you set the same time but you didn't do it first, then fair enough. But because, you know, they have no control over the order that they go out of the pit lane at this stage of of, of qualifying, I think it's then only fair to, you know, change that rule so that the lap is – they then redo the lap or redo the shootout, you know, to give, you know, a fair fair sort of comparison and – you know, then we we sort of decide fairly, really, of, of who should progress to, through to the next part of qualifying. I mean, given it's based on a, a football knockout system, maybe the teams could arrange a little five-a-side penalty shootout or something at the end and uh, decide it that way. Yeah, maybe. Um, let's say for the British drivers, I don't know if we do it quite as well, but uh, yeah, who knows? Um, Sam, Jeff was understandably upset by this, but he channeled it all to be that battling second place that you mentioned. Um, yeah, on Sunday, he was a distant ninth. What, why were the contrast? Yeah, you're right. He was good on Saturday, drove a good race. But but actually, at the same time, I think he, he had a really he had a really good chance to win it. Um, and I think he knew that. I spoke to him after the race. He decided um, to, in his own words, not trust his team with telling him when to take his attack mode. And he took it a lap later than was intended, which was his decision, which I'm, you know, I'm not sure was um, was completely um, aligned to what the team were, were looking for him to do. Clearly, wasn't, and you know whether that changed anything for him is is up for debate. Um, but certainly, he spent a bit of time. There was some orchestration with his teammate Antonio Felix da Costa, which I think maybe cost him a little bit more, which he was a bit rattled by. You know, how many times have we heard that before with Diaz to cheat? And it's it's an intricate thing to try and plot out during a race, that's for sure. But you know, I I, I think he sort of rued the fact that he wasn't able to, uh, I suppose, just end that drought. You know, he's not won since Rome. Last season, which yeah, is amazing, you know, it's a big drought for Jean Eric Verne. He's, he's used to winning, and you could see that in the slight disappointment afterwards. And I think on Sunday, he just generally lacked grip. I mean, he he didn't do a, an especially great qualifying lap. Rarely does Verne get in, not get into the um, to the group stages, into the duels, but he didn't on Sunday. 
lack grip, struggle with the tyres. Um, things improved in the second half of the race and his pace picked up. But I think, again, just a legacy of the variation in the sets uh, that, that Michelin, the Michelins they had. So he fell away and, um, yeah, he, you know, he, he did get a clutch of points, but uh, lost a bit, little bit of momentum uh, because he'd been so consistent up until that point this season. Alice, Envision had their worst qualifying of the year on Saturday with Robin Frines and Nick Cassidy uh, on the penultimate row. Yeah, on Sunday, uh, Robin was on the front row. So how did they manage that turnaround? Yeah, I mean, obviously quite a contrast of, of days from from the first first race on Saturday to the second race on the Sunday. You know, Robin was was really disappointed with with the first first day. Um, he he, and honestly as well, got got held up. He he felt so probably would have progressed, but then obviously you know starting for at the back of the the formery pack, it's it's never going to be easy in, in any race car to to try and move your way through, especially when when you're conserving energy, but. The team did a great job, um, turned it around. You know, Nick did a fantastic job as well to have both both cars go through into the shootouts was was great. And you know, Nick's just unfortunate that he had to take the penalty for for changing changing bits on the car. But yeah, Robin had a, a strong race, and I think as we've seen, you need to really try and be consistent in, in Formula E. And okay, we didn't have the best day on on the Saturday, but the team bounced back and, and we had, you know, especially for Robin's side, a, another consistent result there, thereabouts in, in the top five. And I think that's going to be key, trying to rack up these these results and finishing in the top five to to end, you know, uh, towards the end of the season, be, be in the right position in the points. On the, the last lap of that race on Sunday, we saw that coming together between Robin and Antonio Felix da Costa, which uh, cost the da Costa that place, um, why did it go unpunished? That's a, that's a good question, and I mean, you know, when I watched it on the on the TV, I thought, oh, I had to sort of see it again because I wasn't sure if Antonio had had changed line at all, and obviously he hadn't. I think it was Robin. Obviously, didn't mean to do it. He apologised to Antonio. Basically, Robin moved, you know, from Robin's point of view, he moved left just as Antonio were, was lifting. Uh, so maybe the officials saw that, you know, it's it's hard to tell when the driver in front is going to lift. You have no idea. You're obviously on, on different, the last lap, different energy um, sort of settings. Robin had slightly bit more energy than Antonio, so obviously was able to lift slightly later because he didn't need to save as much energy on that last lap. So the only thing I could think is is maybe the the officials thought, well, you know, it's the last lap, it's mixed uh, energy levels. It, it was just one of those racing incidents that that he didn't mean to do. It just happened to be that Antonio lifted at the point where Robin was going left. If he didn't lift to save energy at that point, there wouldn't have been any contact. So may, I, the only thing is, is maybe I can see is the, is they took that from, from you know, the point of view that it was just unfortunate that he happened to lift at the time that Robin was, was moving left. Robin had no idea that he was going to lift at all. I, I think, I think Alice is, is dead right. You know, it was, it was one, there was certainly no malice in this, you know, there was, it was a combination of, of factors that just happened to coincide and, and cause this, uh, this incident. I think really what you've got to ask the stewards or maybe, you know, they could somehow communicate the rationale for coming to these decisions because I didn't speak to one person in the paddock 
on Sunday night who agreed with there not being any uh, penalty for Robin. And, and even Robin was surprised. You know, he said he had some good fortune from the stewarding office um, after the race. I, you know, for me and, and my opinion, and, and I'm not privy to all the data that the stewards got, obviously, it looks uh, from every angle this would be a slam dunk penalty of some description. It was very clear that Da Costa was lifting and coasting, which is an inherent part of, of Formula E, especially at that point in the race. And he just defended as as Robin attacked ultimately, um, and and they had the collision. So you know, listen, as I said, there's no mass malice at all in this. It's just an unfortunate combination. I, I I don't drive these things, but I know a lot of people who do, and no one really understood why somebody who contacted the back of another car. Uh, and gained a position because of it, did not have a sanction for that. You know, does, uh, as as, as De Costa told us on Sunday, does this set a precedent for future races? I'm, I'm not sure that might be a bit strong. I mean, maybe it will, I don't know. But if it does to any extent, then it's dangerous because as we saw in Mexico City in 2019, when Nelson Piquet vaulted over the back of Jean-Éric Verne, it can lead to a big shunt, these type of incidents. And, and the drivers know what they're doing. You know, they've got a lot of experience and they know how to race. Sometimes an unfortunate circumstance like this occurs. So I think from the stewards' point of view, there's there's the, the perceived lack of consistency. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to sort of deep dive a little bit here, but I'll keep it as brief as I can. There were two other incidents during the qualifying on Sunday, which kind of went unnoticed. Nick De Vries failed to stop at the Weybridge because he said he thought the signal to stop was there for his teammate, Stoffel van Dorn. This incident was deemed, it was investigated, no further action was taken. Now, I can't remember when somebody failed to stop for a Weybridge that it didn't go unpunished, but it did on Sunday. The big reveal here is that van Dorn was in the other group. So how does that stack up? Um, the fact that the bulletin states that Weybridge procedure was conflicting and unclear, I don't, you know, isn't a good look for a world championship, is it? So there's a lot of question marks over that one. A few moments later, Nick Cassidy, he was weighed, completed his weighing procedure, but under what he said was a martial signal, drove back to his pit down the wrong way of the pit lane. Um, after a hearing, he was given a five-place grid drop for two penal and, and two penalty points. That could look like a real lack of consistency, couldn't it, for whatever happened there. So there was this little bit of chaos in the in the pits. Both offences saw the toss argued and one was let go because of the the, the hearing and then the other gets penalized pretty severely for, for 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 Nick for Nick Cassidy. I'm not saying that these incidents should be tied together because they were clearly separate offences and should be adjudged so. But where is the consistency and, and and where is the treatment of these um, with similar sanctions, which you thought would have come for incidents that you know, were inherently different, but in the context appear to have some similarities as well. So, yeah, there's, I, I think this is a story that will probably run into the, the next race at Jakarta. And I know that a lot of the teams are questioning um, some of the application of these these uh, decisions. So I'm uh, looking at the Jaguar performance over the weekend uh, in the mix on uh, the first race. Again, one of the ones that fell backwards on on the Sunday, but overall, you know, still very much in the hunt and nothing really to be concerned about. 
No, I, I don't think there's cause for concern. I mean, not unless we end up with six more races at Temple Hoff. <laughs> I think Jaguar was just one of those teams that's really struggled uh, to get their tyres into a um, in, into a window. I mean, it was so difficult to do, but to actually apply their, their vehicle dynamics effectively over the duration of a race. I mean, Mitch had a strong race on Saturday. He went from 10th to 5th, but on Sunday just couldn't get the tyres the into the these really narrow windows and what that does is it, it chews up the rears um you get a horrible amount of oversteer and you just go backwards from there relative to the tight you know the tight uh, competition in formery this year we're talking tenths of a second um if not hundreds and thousands it's really that close so really frustrating for jaguar but at least mitch got a point that might be super important at the end of the season but it, i think you know one point from a race for a title challenging team like Jaguar TCS racing was was you know it was a big disappointment for them uh they, they just looked a bit blunt on Sunday and as but equally as we've seen before this season um from the first three races for Mitch in particular to Rome where he dominated um they are a force and, and they can bite back uh pretty severely so I expect them to and I think it's uh, just a combination of the track and, and, and really struggling with the tyres was what, what hit them last weekend. Alice, it was another uh, tough weekend for Sam Bird, who's just really not been able to get on Mitch Evans's pace so far this season. Um, he's the only driver to have won in any se- every season. I think we would all back him to turn it around, but he's, he's running out of races now. Yeah, as you said, I think don't write him off. We know it's Sam Bird and, and how quick he, he can be and he's won races in every season and that just says it that stat there just says everything about him you know he's he's always pushing 100% he's a top driver obviously um I had the pleasure of working with him for a little bit while he was here um at envision so you know a great guy and yeah i would certainly bet on him winning a race this season and, and turning it around he's certainly not going to give up and Jaguar, I know, will we'll push extremely hard to to make sure that they give Sam um, the best car that they can. Uh, Sam, across practice, it, it looked like this was possibly going to be a Porsche track, and they were, you know, both drivers were looking strong and potentially in the hunt for race wins. Yet they really didn't deliver in, in terms of results. Are they starting to under deliver again this season? Well, they did a bit in Berlin. I think that was plain. Um... It was it seemed like they sort of reverted to the old Porsche of looking really potent, and and then just not executing the races as you thought they would. Um, and it is a track that they know more than any other since they came back since they came into Formula E back in twenty nineteen. That momentum from Mexico has flatlined a little bit now. You know they were really unfortunate in Monaco with that uh, reliability issue, which was actually the um, the 12-volt the, the battery, the um, the ancillary battery, not the main battery, uh, which caused that retirement for Pascal Verlain. Florian Modlinger told us that just ahead of the uh, of heading to Berlin. But I think I think looking at it more positively, obviously the, the deal with Andretti was announced, uh, that they'll be supplying Andretti for 2023, um, as well as the, obviously the, the main factory operation. You know, this will... This will, I think, add some impetus for Generation 3. But the fact is they're still fading in the, the point standings a little bit now from the from the Mercedes teams and, and, and Jaguar and, and Envision 2 and DS to Cheetah. I, I think in terms of they could be the manufacturer that actually shifts some focus to 2023. Now, I'm not saying they will write off 2022 
uh, to any extent at all because they clearly have the car and they have the drivers to to win more races this season. And it could well be that they put a string of results in and, and one of their drivers is able to challenge for the title. That's that's entirely possible. But I just feel that if ever there was a manufacturer that was looking at the bigger picture and how important 2023 for them is, um, for lots of reasons, they, they could make that call. But equally, they have all the capabilities and they have the resources to do both extremely well. So, yeah, a, a little bit of a... A blow because it was on home turf as well for Porsche, but um, I expect them to be to be pretty strong um, when everyone heads to a new track, which is Jakarta in a couple of weeks' time. Well, that's it for part one and a look back at Tempelhof. Uh, coming up in part two, we'll go through all the various news that came out of the weekend. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, let me tell you about Grammarly. As a journalist and podcast host, I'm constantly writing and rewriting copy and drawing up scripts. It's part of the job, and Grammarly helps make it faster. And when it comes to work, communication is key, even if you don't have a writing job like me. Grammarly is an AI writing partner that helps you get work done faster with high-quality writing for better projects, proposals, presentations, and more. It's got some really cool features, like tone suggestions to help you strike the right balance between direct and friendly in work emails. Plus, Grammarly has a ton of other great features like advanced spelling, grammar, punctuation and conciseness suggestions to ensure your writing is professional, mistake-free and clear. 96% of Grammarly users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing and it can help you save time too, allowing you to work smarter, not longer. Get AI writing support that works where you work. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Well, Alice, you can sit back and have a cup of nine for the next few minutes as it's the inevitable return of Sam's calendar update. Berlin has extended its deal for a couple more years, which is great news for the only event to have taken place every season. While there's a familiar track returning to plug the Vancouver hole, Sam. Yes, we're going back to Marrakesh, which uh, has hosted uh, several E-Prix over the years. It's, uh, it's an interesting venue. It will be, certainly in July, because we've never been in the in the uh, the middle of the summer, so the temperatures are going to be the key factor there. I think the average temperature is around 94, 95 degrees. So it is going to be very uh, testing for everything that the teams apply with with these races, especially the, the thermal uh, temperature of the batteries. I, I think the hottest race certainly was the Santiago 
2019 event, which you were at VDB, because I remember both of us um, basically being puddles at the side of the track during the free practice session, which was held in the morning, and then it got hotter in the afternoon, and the track crumbled. The track was like cottage cheese, wasn't it, by the end of it? So I I, I don't think it's going to be that severe, but it certainly will be be fairly toasty out there. I, I think it was a popular... Um, a popular replacement, a super sub race. And I think the main thing is that, that, you know, we don't have another one of these big gaps. No one wants that. So we will have 16 races at 10 events as planned. They did look at Jakarta to hold a double, but it was felt that with the new infrastructure and the personnel in Indonesia and the, the marshals in particular, that I don't think anyone really wanted to overface um, something so new there. So we will have 16. Berlin, yes, an extension of the Tempelhof. The, the mayor of Berlin was there on Sunday, and um, that deal is done. Um, it's it's a race that, when you look at it, a disused airport with a you know a vast expanse of, of tarmac and grass probably shouldn't work, but it does. I really love going there, and uh, I really love Berlin. It, uh, it takes my breath away. Yeah, it's really got made its uh, name as a Formula E venue now, isn't it? It's uh, it's established. It is. You know, we had that one off, didn't we, at uh, Alexanderplatz that, that that didn't work because there was so much. Oof, uh, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't wasn't great, and there was so much disruption to the city centre. But it uh, it works at Templehof, and we we get some great racing. And actually, it was really nice to see at the weekend. It was the first one where there were no restrictions. So we had the there was a really great um, e village, and there was an atmosphere, and the grandstands were were full, which is which is great to see again. And uh, yeah, well, may that continue. Uh, the other big news pre-race was the final confirmation of McLaren taking over the Mercedes thing that you've been teasing us with for months on end, Sam. Um, it's going to have some backing from Saudi Arabia, but how is this deal actually going to work? Well, it's actually very simple. McLaren will take over the existing Mercedes EQ team. Mercedes are leaving, as we've known, since last August, um, which we've talked about and tried to rationalise, and we haven't. Everyone's still baffled by it, but it's done. It's history. But the hope is that, that you know they will come back in the future at some stage. Um, so McLaren will take over. They will own it. They will have the license. It will be financed through what we believe to be a significant investment from Saudi Arabia. So we expect to see some of the names that are already on the uh, the, the silver cars to transfer to what could be orange we don't know yet how that's gonna how that's gonna be ian james will continue uh, to be the team principal and the vast majority of the team uh, will be retained uh, and essentially plugged in and, and played again for for next year when it will be come mclaren it, it won't be based in brackley and it won't be based in woking i'm told there will be a facility close to brackley where this will be run from and there will be elements that are used um, and deployed via via Woking as well as the core engineering team that is that is there at the moment. You know, we covered this story, as you said, pretty closely since the start of the year, and it's nice to see it all come off and become public. Uh, Zach Brown hosted a, a media roundtable remotely on Saturday morning when, when this was announced, and I think there's general positivity. It's a great news story for, for the championship. Ensures there will be 11 teams on the grid next year. Uh, we know about the re-entry of ATS. There's a bigger question mark over to Cheetah, but you'll be able to read a lot more about that uh, on uh, the hyphen. Uh, sorry, on the race uh, on the hyphen race.com. Should know that by now. Got there in the end. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, Nissan powertrains are going to be used. Uh, that's not been officially confirmed. 
but I think it will be soon. And the driver lineup we're going to come on to, but I think they're going to have a pretty stellar uh, couple of peddlers in, in that team for next season. Uh, Alice, pre-weekend, um, Sam did a story about uh, Formula E chairman Alejandro Agag wanting to forge a closer relationship with Formula One. Um, you currently race the W Series, which is part of the support bill uh, for some of the Grand Prix. How do you imagine a Formula E F1 tie-up would work? Um, I think having more teams that, that race in Formula 1 have a tie-up with a team in Formula E. So, for example, like McLaren coming along to, to join Formula E, obviously with the hybrid era in in Formula 1, I think the teams could could certainly learn a lot from from about the batteries, etc., uh, and information that they get from from Formula E, they could probably transfer that across into their Formula One team. So I think that will be a great link up with having some more F1 teams move into to Formula E. So I think it's great to see McLaren coming in. Obviously, more more great competition on the grid for the for the other teams as well, but also on on other stuff within the paddocks. Obviously, those of people that will know that when they've been in a, a Formula E paddock. You know, there's plenty of places to recycle, uh, water stations, you know, that have that are giving out um, refillable sort of bottles. And I think Formula One could certainly have a, a good use of, of combining that with, with Formula E and, and developing some sort of system for, for the fans that, that they can recycle more and, and encourage people to, to travel to, to the venues in a more eco-friendly way. And I think if the two championships come together, I'm sure they could um, draw something up and, you know, also increase fans across both sides to of the board to to help our, our planet. So I think from a fan point of view, it'd be, it'd be great and it'd be great for, for Formula E as well and also Formula One. So I think the starting point would be is, is getting more Formula One teams to to invest in Formula E and, and, and enter a team into the championship. Yeah, I think that's um, there's some really sensible ideas there. Sam, you mentioned um, Andretti confirming its uh, Porsche powertrain supply. Um, what impact is that going to have um, on their driver lineup, but also... I think I've never seen so many potential or confirmed driver moves uh, around the uh, the Formula E entry. So why don't we go team by team um, and uh, who's going to be where for next season? We, we can start with the with the newest team to return to Formula E, so uh, apt. Before we do that, I've, I've never ne- known such a feverish uh, couple of days in the driver market. There was ro- rumour, counter-rumour. There were driver managers running around um, you know with beads of sweat on their foreheads it was all very entertaining to watch and to to sort of understand what might be going on obviously no one really knows until the ink is applied to the contracts but yeah at um uh, thomas biermeyer and members of his team were, were in berlin for a for a couple of days and um looking and speaking to people and, and understanding how after a year away to, to get that team formed i i think it's Highly likely that we'll see Robin Fryens and, and Nico Muller in in that car in those cars. Uh, the contracts aren't formed and signed, but their preference, their strong preference, I think, is to have those two guys that they've known um, for a long time and have, have been part of their DTM packages and other things. Uh, and, and it makes a whole lot of sense to to have Robin and Nico for the start of Gen Three. I think 
Um, Andretti, you mentioned, obviously, Porsche power for next season. I think that, that Jake Dennis uh, has a deal for next season, but the details of any performance clauses or extrication possibilities are obviously not known by anyone outside of that tight unit there. Word in the paddock is that Jake is, is keeping his options open and, and talking to other teams, which obviously most drivers do. Interestingly and intriguingly, he's part of the ADD management stable that looks after Lando Norris and has a certain Mr. Zach Brown as part of its makeup. So uh, make of that what you will, but at the moment it seems reasonably open at Andretti. Um, Dragon, as we know, Dragon will become DS Dragon or DS Penske or however they, uh, whatever it, uh, the, the naming of that operation will become for next season. And we believe that Jean-Eric Vernon and Stoffel van Dorn are deals that are done there. Um, uh, Alice, um, Envision, we're not going to embarrass you by talking about Envision's plans for next season. But uh... Oh, come on, reveal exactly what's going on. We need the full insight here. I have no idea, so I couldn't even help you if, if you wanted me to. No, I, I think I think Nick Cassidy is, is going to be um, staying with the team for next season. Obviously, there, there looks like there is a, um, a Robin Frein-shaped hole in that team. And... Um, yeah, we, we've written. Come on, there's a cheeky rumor. Come on, get the cheeky rumor out there. This, <laughs> well, we, is, this, we, this, this is all rumor mongering. This bit. Well, I wrote a piece last last week before Berlin that the team is uh, the team's talking to Sebastian Buemi amongst other drivers, and uh, I think uh, someone of Sebastian's experience and and technical know how and, and and understanding what Formula E is all about, even though he's had a very difficult couple of years, would be uh, you know would be a very smart move for that team and and a Cassidy and Buemi. Um, uh, duo at that team would be fairly strong, but uh, we'll have to we'll have to wait and see what develops there. Uh, Jaguar has been done for for several months. Mitch Evans and Sam Bird confirmed. Mahindra, I think Oliver Rowland is going to stay there. I think he's got a deal for for next season. Um, the, there's been a long long held rumor that Lucas Degrassi will move to to Mahindra next season. Um, that is yet to be confirmed, and and whether that actually happens, we'll have to wait and see. I think he's. Uh, I think he he could end up uh, at Mahindra, uh, Maserati, um, which is the Venturi team, uh, which will become Maserati next season. I think I, I don't see any reason why Edo Mortara would leave there or, or want to leave there. Um, they will obviously be running essentially DS packages for next year. Um, his teammate is one of the big. Uh, questions. Uh, I think there's lots of drivers in discussions there, and it's an attractive seat. Um, ultimately, Lucas Degrassi could easily make it an unchanged lineup there, but I, I, I think that's looking less likely, and that um, it's really open. I, I, I wouldn't like to mention anyone there. I think Giovinazzi has been mentioned purely because of his nationality and he's driven for Stellantis brands before, etc. But certainly, nothing appears to be done at the moment. McLaren, we ran a story about Rene Rass possibly returning to Formula E, and he is talking to the team closely about terms. It's unsure whether anything's actually agreed or signed, but it looks like Rene Rass could be a really good option for McLaren. The second seat is appears to be completely open. I don't think Nick De Vries is going to be there. I think he's going to have other things uh, to do, whether it's in Formula E or, or WEC, potentially with Toyota, and whether or not he can combine the two and do a, a, a dual programme. Uh, Neo 333, I don't think anything is signed. It's completely open there. Obviously, they have two strong drivers in Dan Tictum and Oliver Turvey at the moment, whether or not they, either one of those or both could be continued. We'll have to wait and see, but certainly other drivers are, are talking to Neo. Uh, Nissan appears to be pretty open at the minute. I think they're chasing a big name in the championship. So um, 
my advice for that would be to to uh, to, to log on to uh, the hyphen race.com in the coming weeks to see the latest on that one. Porsche, uh, Pascal Verlaine will drive for them next season. And uh, as we've written uh, a few weeks, well, a month or so ago now, uh, Antonio Felix da Costa uh, will join him at that team. And that will be announced later in the summer. Tichita, as we touched on, uh, are struggling to continue. Uh, they're looking for uh, an investor and a buyer. Um, and they also will be looking for two drivers, a powertrain and uh, a headquarters. So lots of work to do at Tichita, that's for sure. Um, and I think that covers it, VDB. I think we're, uh, we're across the grid there. Yeah, I'm, I, well done. You know, um, I, given how stable, certainly at the front end of the grid, given how stable the lineups were for the first you know, sort of iteration of Formula E, it's amazing the amount that are going on there. And as you rightly said, um, check out the-race.com for all your latest news. Now, of course, we look forward to the next new track to come onto the Formula E calendar, and that's in the Indonesian capital of Jakarta. Uh, Alice, have you driven it in the sim yet? I haven't. I'm actually here at the sim today, so I plan, I'm guessing that's going to be on my agenda. So, um, yeah, I can't give, give any info really into into the trackers yet which would be maybe I should have done that first thing this morning before recording this but uh, no I think a lot, a lot of the team um, are excited I know Robin and the drivers are excited for going there so um, hopefully it will be a strong one for us what um, from just from looking at the sort of circuit map what are you expecting when you finally do get behind the wheel in the sim um, I think it's going to be be quite a, a tricky circuit to be honest Um I think the teams will obviously be working hard on their their sim models. We certainly will be working hard because, as I've mentioned earlier, we don't get a lot of running in Formula E. It's quite limited. So there's a lot of information for for not just the drivers to take in, but but the teams to take in as well in terms of learning the circuit and, you know, the the way the the asphalt is, uh, certain corners, the, the temperatures, they're expecting it to be quite a, a warm one as well. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays into different teams' hands. So I think it, it'll be tricky. And a new circuit in Formula E, Formula e is always tricky. And for that, that obvious reason that no one's ever been there before, um, we don't get much running. Yes, it's going to be... Um, they're always interested in new tracks. There's always inevitably the odd installation problem as uh, drain covers need welding down or curbs are in slightly the wrong places or whatever. Sam, it's definitely going to be hot. Um, having been to Malaysia and Singapore, possibly a chance of heavy overnight rain to wash the track off again. What are you expecting to happen? Um, yeah, it's, it's a completely open one. I mean, I spoke to Scott Elkins, the, the race director, who's done a site visit there um, relatively recently, and he he said that the track looks looks fantastic. I think it's it, you know it's 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 quite close to the coast. It's got a, a slight feeling of Sanya, which was uh, a couple of years ago, a little island in uh, Hainan off the south of China. That that sort of feel. It's it's, it's a man made street track, let's say, uh, but but challenging. I think Scott said it was from the material we've seen, the films we've seen. He says that it you know it actually looks more impressive and, and bigger from uh, from actually been at the uh, at the circuit so it'll be it'll be a challenge the weather is is always a factor there you know when it when it comes down it really comes down there um, it will be hot it'll be sticky it'll be challenging and it'll be really interesting to see what see what happens i think there's um i think the fact that it's not a double header i think ultimately is good because there'll be so many uh, fresh curveballs to throw at teams i think 
you know going to a new circuit and um, and having a double header is a, is a big ask for everybody and ultimately i think it uh, for the championship i'd much rather see double header events at established tracks which we're going to see at new york and, and now the excel um but then you know i'm going to contradict myself right here and now because the season's going to finish in seoul which is a new a brand new track and i i got an exclusive interview with mr moon who is the promoter of the seoul epri and you can read that on the hyphen race is he over the moon about his prospects that, for that race i think i think it's not going to be the first time we use um those kind of analogies right i think he's uh, <laughs> he is he's a very interesting character and was very um was very positive about everything about that race and uh, you'll be able to read it on the site soon about the plans that they've got there it looks absolutely fantastic it's going to race inside and then come out to the perimeter roads of the Seoul um, Olympic Stadium, the 1988 Olympic Stadium, to which I said, well, does that mean we've all got to dress in shell suits and rock the 1988 fashion look uh, during the, uh, the the weekend? So I think I'm going to have to do that at some stage. Pump ourselves full of as many steroids as we can get our hands I'm not on. going there on that one. I'm not going the Ben Johnson route. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, please don't. <laughs> Well, I think that's a good place to wrap the show for today. Uh, a huge thank you to Alice for joining us, and we wish you all the very best of luck for the remainder of W Series. Thank you very much. And uh, don't forget to check out the other podcasts in the race, including a bumper series that we've got coming from the Indy 500 later this month. Goodbye. Athletic.